Welcome to the Real Truth Matters podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Durham. One of the most cherished characteristics of the heroes of the faith is that they were men who knew God in every sense of the word. They didn't just believe in him, but they knew him. They were men who conversed with God as a friend does with a friend. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, we read, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. These men walked with God and had a fellowship with the divine that was indeed sublime. As you read the New Testament, you see communion with God no less personal than in the Old Testament. Peter mentions the Holy Spirit speaking to him, as well as Luke stating the same thing happened to Philip. The Apostle Paul and others heard the Holy Spirit speak to them. Our Lord promised us a relationship with him that entailed more than just knowing that we are his, but actually includes making his presence known to us. He said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John fourteen twenty one. How can we have a relationship without rapport, connection without conversation? A relationship without dialogue, sharing, and exchange is not a relationship, but an association. The very definition of relationship means a connection between at least two different people. The more significant a relationship becomes depends upon how much connection or interaction there is between the parties. The dictionary defines interpersonal relationships as, quote, social associations, connections, or affiliations between two or more people. They vary in differing levels of intimacy and sharing, implying the discovery or establishment of common ground, and may be centered around something or something shared in common, end of quote. But the words intimate relationship is defined differently. Listen to how the dictionary defines this term, intimate relationship. Quote, an interpersonal relationship with a great deal of physical and or emotional intimacy. It's usually characterized by romantic or passionate love and attachment. Sexuality may or may not be involved. Love is an important factor in intimate relationships. End of quote. There is to be no closer relationship for the Christian than his or her relationship with the Lord Jesus. This is an intimate, companionate, interpersonal relationship that exceeds all others. And yet, except for very few special times, for the most part, our relationship with the Lord seems to be anything but intimate. Our Lord doesn't seem to, to behave as a companion, and that's why other people such as a spouse or children or someone else can be more real to us than Jesus. We can see these people, hear their words of love, feel their embrace, and experience a closeness much deeper and sometimes we do with Christ, if not most of the time. But 
This is not the Lord's design. He wants communion with you and I. And I believe He desires it more than you and I do. I also think we're having communion and fellowship with the Lord, but we've not learned that what's occurring is really communion with God. I think we have some false ideas about what communion with God is. And so, in the next few episodes of this podcast, it'll be our intention to teach what genuine fellowship with the King looks like, how you can actually know God is speaking to you. We'll take a look at the will of God and our knowing it. In other words, we'll share on how God makes His will known to us and how we can know it is God. But for this episode, I want to do some disclaiming. It's as important, as I often say, to know what isn't the thing considered. Often we think something is this or that, but in the final analysis, it really isn't what we thought it was. So, in our time together, I wish to do that kind of work, clear the air and give some biblical parameters as to what relationship, fellowship, intimacy, and conversation with God really is. So, let's begin. Let us never forget, first of all, that relationship with God does not start with us, but it starts with Him. Relationship with the Lord is always initiated by the Lord. He is heaven's suitor in search of His bride, a bride given to Him by the Father, paid for with His blood. At such an expense to Himself, do you think He waits for the prospective bride to approach Him and seek Him out? Of course not. I don't mean that we don't seek His love, but our love for Him is always elicited, drawn out by His first loving, pursuing, and winning our hearts. John said it this way, We love Him because He first loved us. The Lord Jesus is a greater than Solomon who pursues His Shulamite maiden, saying, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. It's Christ who bids us to rise and come away with Him. By this act of love, the Lord captures our hearts and transforms them into vessels that pant for Him. Grace always is the initiator, and the sinner is the recipient of divine love. This is not only true about conversion, but it's true about the development of our relationship with the Lord God. It's God who takes responsibility to lead and guide us just as a shepherd leads his sheep. Now, how can we know what's expected of us if our Lord doesn't take the initiative to tell us? Sheep are naturally not smart animals, and they're also known as an animal that has no natural defenses. Some animals by color and markings are naturally camouflaged, while others have sharp teeth and claws to ward off a would-be predator. Snakes have deadly poison. The porcupine has his sharp needles, but the sheep, they have none of these things. It's truly a defenseless animal that depends upon the care of a shepherd. Not only that, but sheep are naturally curious and will wander aimlessly from the flock. It'll stray right into danger if no one will lead it. 
and also sheep are susceptible to certain diseases, and they need the medical attention of the shepherd. Simply put, they are a very helpless creature. Perhaps I am making too much of the metaphor, but sheep are often used in the Bible as a metaphor of the people of God, not only because of the helplessness against hellish predators that would destroy us, but I think the metaphor is employed by Scripture to accentuate and illustrate the wonderful preservation, provision, and protection of God for His people. The greatest use of this metaphor is found in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, when Jesus said of himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Well, let's look at a few salient points. In verse 4, the Lord Jesus said, And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Now, from this, I would observe, number one, it is the shepherd's responsibility to lead the sheep. Note that the Lord goes before his flock. Sheep cannot know where the greener pastures are, nor the still and safe waters. In southern Israel, there are many Caves and several flocks of sheep might be herded into one of them to escape a storm or to weather overnight. But in the morning, the shepherd doesn't have to look for brands or markings. He just simply steps away from the cave. He gets away from the other shepherds and calls to his flock. And they come right to him because they know his voice. It's so much in the nature of a sheep to follow that's been reported you can hold up a pole 10 feet across. The lead sheep will jump over, and then the next sheep, and then the next one, and the next one, and finally you can remove the pole, and the sheep will continue to jump over the pole, a pole that isn't even there. And sheep also have this dangerous, terrible tendency to follow each other into danger. They've actually been known to leap off of a cliff to their death simply because they saw a preceding sheep fall off the cliff. And that's why a sheep needs a shepherd. And dear friends, so do you and I. We need someone to navigate the hostile and dangerous environment we call the world. We need one to go before us and chart our course for us. And we have his promises that he will do exactly that. In fact, he calls himself the shepherd and we his sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then there's Psalm 139, verses 8 through 10. If I ascend into heaven... You are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. One of the greatest promises of God leading and guiding us is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths.
His very title and name, Lord, tells of one who directs and with absolute authority who controls all within his domain. So it is the business of the shepherd to lead. The second point I want you to see from this John 10 text is that Christ deserves our allegiance. Verse 4 says, And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Christ is to be followed, and it is our good to follow him. Thus it behooves him to go before us and mark the way, and it behooves us to stay close and go in the path he prescribes. In John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. How good are your following skills? Who of us has all they need to maneuver all the complexities of this life with its dangers? No, it requires a wisdom that is omniscient. How about you, friend? I'm sure you've learned a lot, but I doubt seriously you've achieved omniscience. But Jesus is worthy to follow. He is sufficient in knowledge to know the way. He's sufficient in power to protect us in the way. And he is enough in every respect to command the honor and the allegiance of his followers. He is the champion of champions. He has successfully led the armies of heaven to victory, and he will do so yet again, single-handedly. He challenged all the powers of hell and triumphed over them, making them a public spectacle, and he even did that in his weakness. Can you imagine what he'll do in all of his might? Number three, if he is to be followed, then it is of a necessity that he makes us to know his leadership. Again, verse 4 of the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Now, what do I mean? It's the responsibility of the shepherd to lead. He's got to make us to know his leadership. Well, it's quite simple. Sheep don't have to analyze and decipher the will of the shepherd in order to follow him. In fact, they don't even have that ability. The will of the shepherd is not some calculated guessing game. And yet we've turned the will of God into a maze, like in the middle of a cornfield, daring people to find their way. Many think finding the will of God's like finding the proverbial needle in the haystack, as if we have to get so spiritual in order to be able to read God's mind. But that's not biblical, friend, nor is it the way a real relationship works. When one person is responsible for another, he or she doesn't try to conceal the right pathway, nor make it as difficult as possible to discern. No, it's just the opposite. The responsible party wants the one following to know with certainty what is right and true. In fact, truth is what they want to instill into the person following them so they too can know the way and lead others. Therefore, I say, it's the responsibility of Christ, our dear and good shepherd, to lead us in such a way that we know it is the way and it's him leading us. He knows there are many would-be hirelings who care nothing for the flock trying to lead astray, and there are those who did not come in at the gate but climb over the wall to plunder and abuse the flock of God. All of these would have you to believe they are the good and better shepherd. 
but the true sheep of Christ know him. Christ says of his sheep, they know him, verse 14, and that a stranger they will not follow, but will flee him, for they know not the voice of strangers. Again, in the 27th verse, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is a repeated theme. So you can see why I say it's not yours or my responsibility to try to figure out what the shepherd is saying. It's his duty to make his leadership clear and plain so we can follow. If literal sheep do not have the ability to discern what their shepherd is thinking, well, how much less do we have the ability to know the mind of God? Yes, yes, we have the mind of Christ, but but that doesn't translate into we having omniscience. How could we ever rightly anticipate every contingency and its ramifications? How could you, my friend, know every twist and turn without divine omniscience? There's simply no way we can know the way in which to go without the merciful leadership of God. Sheep don't start the day talking among themselves, trying to guess which pasture. He, the shepherd, will lead them. No, they follow him. Sheep don't make decisions. That's the task of the shepherd. The task of the sheep is to obey. And when sheep start making decisions independent of the shepherd is when problems begin. Consequently, shepherds lead by making their will known to the sheep and the sheep trustingly follow. But before leaving this thought, some argue that this passage in John 10 has nothing to say about our Lord's subjective guidance. They limit this passage to regeneration and conversion, that Jesus is simply talking about how one enters into the kingdom. They hear the good shepherd, and they follow him and are saved. Surely the Lord does deal with the beginning of the Christian life in this chapter. For example, you find in verse 3, Jesus saying to him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And again in verse 15 and 16, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring in. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. He's talking about Gentiles who are not of the fold of the Jewish followers. And he is going to lay down his life for both Jews and Gentiles, and there'll be one flock. However, before we come to the conclusion that leadership and the guidance of Christ only is about conversion, let's remember the context. The context is about the blind man whom Jesus healed in chapter 9 and the Pharisees who claimed they were not blind. Chapter 10 is simply a continuation of the dialogue of chapter 9. Our Lord's whole point is that his sheep know him and follow him unlike the Pharisees. It was an indictment against the religious leaders who had rejected Christ. To limit this illustration to the act of being saved cuts against the context. In fact, the distinctive about the sheep that Jesus reemphasizes over and over is that his sheep not only follow him out of the gate, but they continue to follow him. He does not limit it to one event. Again, verse 4. And when he brings out his own sheep, 
Now, this is in a tense that tells us Jesus is speaking of something that happened in the past at a point in time. But then he goes on. He goes before them, and the sheep follow him. Here, here, the tense changes to the present, which means ongoing action. They do not only follow at the moment of conversion, but afterwards. They don't stop following, and this is the characteristic that separates them from the unbelieving Pharisees. And then he says in that last part of verse 4, for they know his voice. This is also in the present tense. They know his voice, and they keep knowing it, proving that our Lord continues to lead us even after we are converted. Regeneration and conversion has made it possible for us to know our shepherd and follow him forever. Thus, it's always our responsibility to follow, and it's always the Lord Jesus' responsibility to lead us and guide us. This is reinforced in our Lord's teaching about the Holy Spirit. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to lead us. In John chapter 14, verse 16 through 18, Jesus said, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And then in verse 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things I said unto you. Two chapters later in John 16, verse 13, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. The Apostle Paul teaches us also about the leadership of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, the significance of Romans eight fourteen is not that God leads us concerning every detail in our lives. No, that's not what this verse is about. We've already looked at verses that state he does that. This verse is about the Spirit of God working to lead you to do verse 13, the preceding verse, that says, For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. However, even if this verse does not suggest personal divine guidance concerning all things that concern us, it is about personal subjective guidance concerning the pursuit of holiness. Well, before we end today, there's a most important fact that is most often overlooked. And the fact is that God has promised to make us understand His way. Listen carefully. Let me say it again. God has promised to make you to understand His way. Now listen to his promise. It's found in Psalm 32 in verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. What a blessed promise of divine guidance. 
The Lord commits himself to lead us by instruction. But if you're paying attention, you notice the verse reads a little redundant. It's repetitive. I will instruct you and teach you. Well, aren't those two things really the same thing? In English, they are. And in English, it would get you docked a point or two if you turned in a sentence like that into your English teacher. But in the Hebrew, it's two different things. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. In Hebrew, the very opening clause, the first clause, I will instruct you, literally means I will cause you to understand. The Lord has promised to do more than just teach us. He's guaranteed to help you understand what he has taught. Now, in my case, that's extremely helpful because I can be slow to understand. I'm right there with the disciples when Jesus said to them, how is it you do not understand? He asked them that many times. I need someone to help me understand And the Lord has promised me he will do that very thing. He takes responsibility to lead us, and he takes it very seriously. He teaches and opens our understanding. To be led by God requires not only his leadership, his instruction, but that he open our understanding to it. Our Lord knows our frame, and our frame is but dust and We're frail and feeble. Even the strongest among us in the end is pitifully puny and weak. We need a good shepherd that makes us to know his will and prescribes the way. And we have one. We have one. We are in a personal relationship with a person who loves us more than we know. Why would he make his will difficult to discern if he requires such obedience. Oh, yes, sometimes the will of God is difficult to live, but never difficult to know what it is. Now, we'll get more into this in our next episode. Today, I hope you can see that knowing the will of God is not made to be a spiritual version of a game of hide-and-go-seek. And to the best seeker goes the prize of knowing the will of God. No, not at all. It's not your responsibility to try and figure out what the will of God is. Rather, it's our Lord's business to teach us and cause us to understand it. It's our responsibility to obey by faith our Good Shepherd. Well, thank you for listening today. I'd like to tell you before we end this episode about my new book, The Fight of Faith, how A Christian can experience assurance of salvation. This is, I pray, a helpful book, not just for those who struggle in this area, but for those who are trying to help others who do struggle with assurance. You can order the book through our website, realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters, all one word, lowercase, realtruthmatters.com. And as always, please leave a review Uh, subscribe to this podcast directory that you get this podcast from and help others to find it as well. Well, on behalf of all of us here at Real Truth Matters Ministries, thank you for tuning in and may the Lord richly bless you with his love in a real and tangible way. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.